This is the segment that never ends. It just goes on and on, my friends. Thank you for that. Somebody music. started reading it, not knowing what it was. And now they'll continue reading it forever just because it is the segment that never <laughs> did, ends. Did you just come up with that by yourself? That's impressive. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. Episode 42 marks our first episode of 2023, which has started much like 2022 ended, which means we'll be regurgitating many of our greatest hits and going back to the well to talk more on the death of globalization, obviously, China's reopening or closing or reopening, and more goings on at the WTO. And later we'll talk to Alessandro Fidele on the role of the private sector in humanitarian aid, and also what it's like to be from a part of Italy so far south, you can see Staten Island from there. My kindred spirit. <laughs> and we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup and a few jokes. So now we can go to the rest of the episode. Without further ado. Without further ado. <laughs> Well, everybody, welcome to episode 42. It's the first episode of 2023, which is kind of a big deal because mm. there'll never be another first episode, episode of, 2023. of 2023. 42 is, happens to be the atomic number of Molly Bdenum. Yeah. And I didn't make that up. That's the thing you take at the concerts. And I'm not drunk. No, yeah, just the, Molly. First half, the first part of it. Okay. The name is derived from Greek Molybdos, which means lead. You'll be interested to know or not that our body uses molly to process proteins and genetic material like DNA. It helps to break down drugs and toxic substances that enter the body. 42 also happens to be the age when Rob first moved to Europe and discovered what a quiche was. I thought it was quiche. It's, it's also the, uh, the number of parking tickets I have outstanding in the New York tri-state area as we record this. Really? But it, they're not like the Swiss. They won't make you pay it upon entry into the, the U.S. Come and get us. Yeah, let them try. They can't extradite me, can they? Yes, they can. Anyway, there's been a lot in the news today. The artist formerly known as Prince Harry, his new book is out. What do you make of it? I know you've read it. I think they're redefining how to bore the hell out of it <laughs> right before a launch. BBC has a new story about every paragraph. I would have been aggrieved too if I was Prince Harry and uh, William stole my bagel. <laughs> I don't know what that's a euphemism. I don't no, know he, what it he's means. He's complaining a lot. I don't, I don't know. Michelle, what do you think? Am I, am I wrong here? Oh, they couldn't torture that information out of me. Like, I couldn't. Or money. No. Especially the bit about him in a field. He killed 30 enemy with a plastic fork and I found that one. <laughs> Allegedly. Anyway, Davos is also back, yeah. this time without snow. Hashtag thanks climate change. It's been in the news as we are recording this, Davos is finishing up. It started off with a bang like most times, but I kind of feel like because Joe Biden is not there, a lot of big world leaders aren't there, that there's been a little bit of a lack of interest in it. You sent me the absolutely most boss picture of Ngozi with sunglasses yeah, it's at a, Davos. It's a vibe. This is a vibe. That's all I got out of it. Then that was enough. The vibe has shifted. I'm going for it. That's That basically is the portrait of who I want to be. What else is new? So, okay, we have some listener feedback. The first one is from, I think I know who it's from, but anyway, he writes that, quote, I am hooked. I absolutely love it. Great job, guys. This is the best, baddest idea you've ever had. It's not signed by anybody, but that's the message. It was actually delivered to us in a bar by a guy who asked us the last time we called him, do you have a jingle? Yeah, we gave him free airtime, and that's that's how he... That's, he, that's he, a, he anyway, it took two years, but we grew on him like a fungus. Yeah, apparently we did. Apparently anyway, he's also got a lot of time on his hands. 
Maybe he's painting his house or something. Or doing the laundry or whatever. This one's a good one. I don't really know what it means. Trilly Vanilli writes, I think it's a something to do with Milli Vanilli. Any case, he says, it's, quote, funny enough to keep you engaged in global politics. I guess he missed the trade part, but I'll, I'll take it. All of it was lip synced. Just funny enough. Just, <laughs> just no, no, enough. No, I mean, that's what we're aiming for, right? <laughs> not, not too funny. No, no. What else have you been hearing, Rob? I, well, I think it's a difficult time, and I'm glad that we're all here on the podcast. And, you know, there's been a wave of layoffs through the tech sector. We know that. And, of course, a trade planning is no exception. And we've decided, uh, after hiring up very substantially during the pandemic, that we're going to have to do a reduction in force of 6% of our personnel. Now, that doesn't come out to a round number, obviously. And so we've been doing quite a lot of consultation, thinking about it, talking to the board, obviously. And I've decided to work 6% less on things like scripting, or promoting or reading your Instagram posts. That, is, that's, which, a, that's a reduction. It's a blessing in disguise because that means nothing will change. Yes. <laughs> it's like dividing six by zero. What? I'm telling you, that's the most outrageous part of this whole wave of layoffs. They think they can cut 10,000 people like nope. me. Well, then, listeners, I guess we'll be glad to know that nothing will change on the script writing or the producing of episode front for trades planning, even though you are taking that X percent reduction. I was also going to redu reduce the amount I was involved in the post-production. This is like our UN Word of the Day segment, which died a natural death. This is doing what you did before, but calling it a different name. <laughs> calling it a reduction in force. <laughs> Let's see who notices. Hint, nobody. <laughs> Spoiler alert. So, 2023 is only a few weeks old, but there's still plenty to talk about. For this episode, I guess the segment has been renamed... What went wrong this year so far? To start off, I think we'll talk about everybody's favorite headline, which is, is globalization dead? And we'll talk about that yet again. I, for one, this is a sort of a bit of a segue. I cannot wait for AI to take over the jobs of headline writers at newspapers and other publications. We'll not have to see, is globalization dead anymore? Or maybe we will. We will. It gleans from all those headlines that's that that's the most important headline to write. That's true. I don't even know what I'm asking for. Anyway, I thought this would have sort of subsided. We saw a bit of a lull towards the end of last year, but this new year picked up and there's been sort of an inundation of writings and articles all about how globalization is being threatened. It's either changing, it's going away, it's the end of globalization again type of things. We've heard bits on the world trading system. And I think this, again, it's maybe making it a bit more real for me. I mean, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but we're talking to our own sort of bubble and we were bringing it to light of non-trade specialists around the world. We're still in our own bubble a bit, but now it seems like it's in publications on a weekly basis, and it seems like it's sort of cementing its presence, so it's becoming a thing. Perception is becoming reality. I don't know what you think about this, Rob. There are a couple of articles, I think, from Peter Goodman, who we interviewed about a month or two ago on the podcast, talking about how globalization is not really ending, but rather it's shifting into a regional sense. So more jobs are coming to Mexico, more companies are looking to out to source products from Mexico rather than China, not for any political reasons, but just because they've learned the lessons of the past three years, especially with the supply chain crunches and things like this. They're shifting a lot of their production nearshore, if you will, for lack of a better word, to be able to be a bit more resilient. I think globalization, it's a bit silly to say it's dead. I think it's changing. It's always been changing. It's just the fact that the last 20 or 30 years, we've grown accustomed to it. And I think the rules of the game, if you will, are... Yeah, but the term tells you what you want it to tell you. So mm. for somebody like me, from the 90s, it tells me economic efficiency. It tells me, you know, greater choice. It tells me the spreading of economic opportunity. If you're somebody else, it says, China's stealing my jobs. If you're another one, it says, China's stealing my 
rare earth minerals. So I think the wave of articles now is basically surprising the stuff we've been talking about. So there's a rise in subsidies and protectionist measures and other things that might be some of both. So European regulation, US CHIPS Act, US IRA Act, things about electronic vehicles and so on. So it's true that this is a kind of counter narrative to the liberalism that I learned in the 90s. And the talk of regionalism is basically a counter argument saying, let's not stop globalization. Let's just make it a little closer and a little better. So I think it's really a summary of the fact that all these things are coming together at once, that the reputation has gotten lower, and that if it could become a kind of spiral. So if the Europeans then go towards subsidies like the Americans have, if the geopolitical situation gets worse and we begin to put up more barriers, we could see a substantial negative effect. But I also think, hey, it's cyclical. We went too far. Hmm. Like you're, like Goodman said, hmm. I know exactly why we went to neoliberalism in the 90s, because there was so much poor economic policy. We're 30 years later, 35 years later, and we went too far. And I mean, unless I become a billionaire pretty soon. You'll pay for this. <laughs> in any case, I don't think it's dead yet again. Also, anecdotally, I will say it's not so funny when you use the term industrial policy in a conversation pejoratively and expect like a normie to understand it. But as everybody we interview says, industrial policy always existed. Subsidies always existed. They're becoming, it's more. Yes, it's more. But we're in different shades of gray. And that's what I like as a middle manager. 50 Shades of Grey. Okay, moving on. We'll, uh, <laughs> we're actually going to touch on that. You know, I actually saw 50 Shades of Grey on the television. There's a movie. Why would you have done that? It was horrible. It was it was so really bad. bad. There's a movie. There's a movie. <laughs> Michelle, have you seen this thing? No. Why? It was a book first, Michelle. Why did they shave this guy's beard and make him speak in an American accent? He's totally unappealing. I'm dying. There's like three he's movies. He's totally unappealing, he's, this guy. He's Irish. In, when he, in his Irish thing, remember when he was the rapist on uh, the, what's it called? The, uh, <laughs> fill me in, Michelle, here. The the Verge, The Urge. She's trying not to laugh. merge. She's, she's covering her mouth. The Dream, The Fleam. I, I, the cop show with that lady in it. The guy with the face, the, with the, the eyebrows. No, the blonde who's Anglo-American. I know his name. Jamie Dornan. Yes, but I don't know what movie he was. Played the serial baddie okay. on a cop show. Edge, The Fledge, something. In any case, long story short, with his Irish accent and his beard, he's super appealing. He's also an Omega ambassador. But as an American <laughs> with his... <laughs> Thanks, folks. We're back to watches. Archie just wants to be sponsored by Omega. The guy from Fifty Shades it's of Grey. Sponsoring, sponsored by them and I'm I, not. I gotta, I gotta hand it to you. Uh, We'll get to that bit on subsidies because I think it's really interesting. It's an open question I had in my head, but now I will have this conversation with you later on. First, we've seen a lot also on the economic forecasts getting gloomier and gloomier over the past, say, two, three weeks. There's been bits in The Economist, but basically all newspapers. We've seen it in The Guardian. We've seen it in FT, pretty much everywhere. So we've also seen it not only in the editorial stuff we've been reading, also Google, for example, is just one of the latest companies to announce that they're laying off 12,000 people. So it's just another sign of what people are now seem to be writing about. We've seen Christine Lagarde also talk about how financial markets shouldn't price interest rates to go lower. So she said, actually, the ECB is going to keep their interest rates where they are or even bring them higher. So they should not get ahead of themselves. So that does not portend for a good outlook. I think it'll become more and more of a reality when people start believing what they're reading. I think perception does become reality at some point. What's interesting for me is that although we've seen lots of tech layoffs, the real economy seems to be doing just fine still at the moment. I say just fine in parentheses, but 
they seem to be having actually the opposite problem, which is finding workers to fill certain jobs. It's only because tech takes up a disproportionate amount of our um, pension, whether that's in things like the Wall Street Journal or others, and this affects how we perceive things. For me, there seems to be a bit of a disconnect there, but I don't know what you think of that and the general gloominess. Yeah, I agree with you that, that there's too much oxygen devoted to the tech layoffs. There are a few percent, Goldman 6%, because they had hired up and they hadn't done their usual layoffs, Alphabet and so on. It's in the few percent. It's not a big deal. They massively overinvested. We know they did. So this is not a big deal. For me, it's true, and we don't know how much to really bore the listeners with, or all of us to bore each other with, issues on climate. So there's huge volatility now. And this is, you look at California and so on. So this is really worrying. And I think it's going to be the driver of most trade and economic conversations over the next few years. If there's a supply chain issue, it could be because a glacier fell, could be because there's a massive floods, a city was destroyed or something like that. In terms of the global economic situation, for me, looking at the developing world especially, which is the work that we're doing, the debt crisis is worrying. So debt levels went way up. The options that these governments have to do things for their populations have gone down, and that's combined with higher prices of commodities, higher prices of food, and higher prices of pretty much everything, especially for urban folks. So now it's come down a bit. We know it's moderated from its very top. We've talked about it before, but the debt crisis is still there. And then, of course, we hear a million times, it's China that will determine global growth. China will determine whether we come out of things. China's post-COVID policy, fine. I do think that's true when you look at everything in the aggregate sense. But there's so much volatility and variation among the different countries that we're looking at. And I do think it's weird that the U.S. economy is still strong and the U.S. jobs market is still strong. Doesn't make any sense. So I haven't looked. The data haven't really filled me in on where we're going with this. Last bit we want to talk about is that the WTO, the US, and the EU are still in the news, and it is sort of the thruple we didn't know we needed or wanted to talk about. I, for one, cannot wait for the Netflix series that will inevitably come out of this. I just want to know who's going to play Joe Biden. Everybody's just thinking, when is Michelle's segment coming? And what is a thruple? <laughs> anyway, as I said, WTO, EU, and the US are in the news. So just recently at Davos, the head of WTO urged talks bilaterally between the EU and the U.S. to resolve the crisis, the subsidies issue that we've seen through the IRA and the green subsidies package. They should resolve it themselves rather than just adjudicate it through the WTO, which I found quite interesting that the head of the WTO, which is referee, if you will, of all this, is saying, actually deal with it yourselves before you come to us and have us deal with it. I thought that was a bright spot, if you will. You know, it seems that things are moving along. I don't think she would have said this if she didn't have some indication that there's light at the end of the tunnel there. Yeah, I think that you make a good point. And probably what she may be inspired by is the fact that if every time the WTO makes an adjudication against the U.S., even if, for instance, the Biden administration is defending a Trump administration policy based on security exceptions for something like, you know, relabeling requirements in Mexico, this is ridiculous. But it's also undermining the WTO. So if they're going to bring their axes and grind up the WTO, it's not going to be helpful. I also think this is the biggest story in trade right now, US v. EU on subsidies and on the idea of protectionism, but also on the idea of what are we going to do with regulation to push the green transition? And this is going to have to involve regulation, and it's going to have to involve barriers, if you want, or requirements imposed on trade. I think this is a super important point. I think we're already seeing live in real time what we thought we knew about trade or took for granted as these are the rules and they were 
forever stay thus seems to be changing. So you've seen just at Davos recently, you've seen so many companies or heads of companies in Europe, I should add, saying how what Biden is proposing is actually a great thing and the EU should get its act together. And they want to see governments subsidize it. And historically, if you look at it, I mean, governments are the ones who really plant the seeds for the private sector to then find use cases for consumers, for example, whether it's the internet and others. So rather than thinking of it as a race to the bottom, let's see it as a race to who can get that green energy transition moving at a much faster clip. Yeah, and to the earlier question we had on globalization, globalization we know isn't dead because trade is still extraordinarily strong in these value chains. There's still a lot of trade happening, for instance, in the U.S. and China, we know that, and maybe it's radiating out to other East Asian economies. But if we're going to export our carbon, as an example, through this process, we know that this is not helpful in terms of somehow ensuring a green transition. Now the Europeans are putting all this regulation. In my work, where we're trying to help people go to market in Europe, it's becoming a much less attractive market. They're actually looking for other markets. But I don't think that's a good thing. You know, I think we actually need some sort of fair global playing field, whatever you want to call it. We all need to do this thing. We all need to find ways to incentivize or regulate companies into producing in a more sustainable way, using more sustainable energy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that this probably conversation, which might not be totally healthy within the U.S. and the EU, is about something that's super important. And these kinds of regulations, of course, are going to affect trade. It'll definitely be something we continue to watch as the year goes on and we continue to churn out the episodes. We'll make sure chat GPT writes. Right. I think fix. more complex trade regulations lead to more work for most of the folks we know. So you're really selling your book now, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Alessandro Fedele is a senior global marketing commercial executive currently leading the global business unit that takes care of fundraising strategy, private sector partnerships, and innovative financing at the IFRC. It's the same as the ICRC? No, it's different, Rob. It's the International Federation for the Red Cross and Red Crescent. Before joining the IFRC, Alessandro worked at IKEA, the Coca-Cola company, and Unilever, and most recently at UNICEF, where he led several global marketing campaigns and new partnerships with international organizations and the private sector. He holds a master's degree in business administration from the Bocconi University and a postgraduate certificate from Eshade and IMD. My old job. He's passionate for classic cars and motorbikes, skiing, and sailing. So... Alessandro, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Also, a pleasure to have somebody on who's not from just the trade space. Why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? How did you end up on this podcast talking to us today? Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. I work for the IFRC, International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, which is the secretariat in charge to coordinate the 192 national societies around the world, all the Red Cross and Red Crescent organizations. I'm not a pure humanitarian, if you like. My background is in business. I studied the business administration in several universities, actually. And for the first 15 years of my professional life, I've been working in fast-moving consumer goods companies like Coca-Cola, Muller experience in IKEA. And at a certain point of my life, I decided to use my management competencies, the sales and marketing competencies, for something more meaningful. Before joining IFRC, my real move into the humanitarian sector, if you like, was when I started in UNICEF, the UNICEF headquarters here in Geneva, where I'm still based, where I work for IFRC. 
So my first follow-up question is you mentioned Unilever, Ikea, and another Coca-Cola. Can you get us discounts at any of those places? (laughs) I'm not sure you're in. For Coca-Cola, I can check. I used to have every month, I tell you, every month, three boxes, which correspond maybe 72, something like this. So I used to give a lot of product for free. So unlucky, we didn't know that at the time, but <laughs> I can check still. I have some friends uh, in Europe more. They get yeah. some discounts. Because podcasting is not paying very well. No, he can give us some tents. <laughs> IFRC can give us some tents or something. Some of that peanut butter. We need some of that. So I guess the, the question we have when we meet folks like you as a private sector doesn't necessarily have something that immediately comes to mind when we think about humanitarian assistance. So what should we think? We think of private sector sort of profit motivated. We think of humanitarian as motivated by something else. So what? where is the relationship? What's the relationship between the two? Well, no, you're right. It's true that when we look at the biggest picture of the humanitarian sector, private sector organizations, which means corporation or foundation, contributes only for a 7% if you like, of the total needs in cash, of the total needs of humanitarian. However, there is always this sweet spot between what we need and our mission and mandate and the special specific interest of the private sector in collaborating in the context of humanitarian sector emergencies. The first priority of the private sector is to bring back to work the socioeconomic system, the local infrastructure, small and medium enterprises, because this will allow the other to have business back on track, which is also one of the reasons why during COVID, we have seen an extraordinary support of the private sector. Because exactly in that moment with the COVID, the impact of that specific pandemic and the global scale into the business has been just extraordinary. So what would that look like in practice? So how does a partnership with IFRC and say, I don't want to say, let's not say Coca-Cola, let's say Pepsi. You can say Coca-Cola because actually Coca-Cola <laughs> is one of our global supporters, particularly in this aspect. So the principle is the following. So of course, my first interest is to have a cash financial support to execute our program, our operation. But there is much more we can get. We can get assets, we can get technology, we can get expertise, we can get product. Uh, normally, we tend to prefer non-food items because for logistic reasons, it is more simple, etc. And on the other side, the private sector is very much interested to partner with us, first of all, because they can improve their image as uh, employer. And so they can increase also the loyalty and the retention of their talent. Also, they can improve their corporate reputation, which has also an impact uh, for the investors. And so they have now um, an interest to collaborate with us, uh, not just on one-off basis, but on a medium, long-term, with a multi-year agreement. Yeah, I guess so there's humanitarian, then there's business and trade and emergencies, but a lot of the folks that are suffering, particularly in emergencies, also need to eventually get back into the trading system or get back into economic equities. Does that relationship somehow help in doing that? Or you think it's more temporary? Or how do you see that connection? First of all, let me tell you a great example on how private sector can help 
For instance, we have a global pit management coordination. Our center is based in Dubai. So we have agreement, multi-year agreement with Land Rover, more recently with the Volvo. And they support us in the provision of uh, cars uh, of any kind as a part uh, of their in-kind contribution for the execution of our program. We have a collaboration with Airbus and they don't give us cash, but they can significantly strategically support us, for instance, with logistics because they have airplane aircraft based in different parts of the world. And also they can give us access to a satellite images after a cloud. And through this image satellite approach, we can organize our intervention and our action in the most efficient way. I have a Microsoft that provides us uh, with software, iCloud services, digital literacy. They are also supporting us in our digital transformation. I have a pharmaceutical company to train our volunteers to become a better community health workers that can provide uh, primary health services uh, to our local community. There are a lot of very concrete examples, these are just a few, on how they can help. So when it comes to trade, one of the things we've been talking about this year is geopolitical pressures also, which are separating supply chains. So typically it's US-China or Russia's kind of thrown some wrinkles into the works. So without you know taking you into political quicksand <laughs> that you don't want to get into, do you see this fragmentation as something you're having to deal with more and more? Or do people, when it comes to humanitarian, people say, look, it's not an issue for us. We can all get on board with that. Or do you see this fragmentation affecting your work at all? So this is something we are observing uh, for sure that the most recent event will have an impact. I cannot detect precisely how, but for sure there will be a change. What I can say already is that we are in a process of reviewing our supply chain. Because on one side, we are the most decentralized system. We are the biggest membership organization. And by definition, we are decentralized. And so we count a lot, we leverage a lot our local presence in terms of uh, uh, distribution and penetration in the local community. So the biggest value of our supply chain happened at the national level. However, we are reflecting what type of efficiencies we can reach by centralizing part of the supply chain. From COVID, we have learned that there is also the opportunity to be more efficient in distribution of vaccines, where we play an important role also together with the, the UN system. Other type of uh, non-food items could benefit from efficiency by centralization. And so we are here now observing the evolution of the trading system, supply chain system, etc., try to understand what is the right balance between leveraging the local dimension and our parallel penetration and looking for efficiency at the global level. I have to say COVID gave us a lot of motivation and stimulus to reflect on that. Fantastic. I think this really highlights a point which is often overlooked. People don't often assume that the work that IFRC and your organization is doing doesn't often go hand in hand with what the private sector is also doing. So I think you really illuminate a lot of that. But now I think we have to go to the hard hitting part of this interview. So first question, you're originally from Southern Italy, which as far as I can tell, probably means that you can see 
Albania from your house, much like Sarah Palin can see Russia. Oh, yes. So let me be precise. I come from Lecce. If you look Italy like a boot, I'm at the end of the hill. So I'm part of this Salento area, which now is becoming more and more famous in the rest of the world. Lecce is not really on the sea. But if you go to Otranto, Otranto is the place most at east in Italy. I can tell you that you can really see Alenia in those days uh, with a clear, clear sky, etc. It's happened to me in summer, but this is more often in winter with Tramontana, which is the wind from the north. So another question that we had, probably most people want to know is, what is the over-under or the amount of times a day that you have to explain to people the difference between the IFRC and the ICRC? Oh my God, you got it. Yes, yes. So we assume that because our brand is so strong, we are so famous, everybody knows. But actually, the co- precisely because our brand is so strong, actually the confusion is even higher. And so I guess at least 10%, 15% of my life at all, every time I discuss with someone new, I need to do this introduction because if I don't do proactively, be sure that during the conversation, they will make a confusion. They will tell me that I work for ICRC or maybe they contact me, but actually they wanted to talk with ICRC or vice versa. Do you ever like have a rumble with ICRC staff? In Geneva, do you guys get like together? Like f- firemen versus cops, soccer team? <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we are really in peace, in very strong relationship. We like to work together. We have a lot of native mech. I personally, I am part of what we call the, the virtual Beijing hub, which is in fact a mechanism where we combine forces together with the biggest national societies. But you definitely society. have different different bars. Yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> okay, so we're a kind of a scientific show here. We like to collect data. So one of the things that makes somebody Genevois that makes them somebody that lives here is to get their bike stolen. So have you ever had your bike stolen in Geneva or anywhere else? I'm sorry. Well, I own my bikes, but because I don't live in Geneva, maybe... And I always leave my bike uh, in the garage, never get stolen because I don't go with my bike in Geneva, actually. I just <laughs> go in the countryside because I live in Bo. So I cannot declare to be real genuine. There's an issue. Yeah, there's an issue. I have to admit, in Geneva, you see so many fancy, stylish, uh, and very expensive bikes which is not my case. Bike has maybe 15 years in very, very, very good condition, but I bought it at the Decathlon. It's not very expensive. I don't think no one will be interested. <laughs> Listeners heard it here. It's a brand new strategy on how not to get your bike stolen in Geneva. Yeah, stay in boat. Don't live here. <laughs> don't be fancy and stylish on bike. And so the last scientific element of the podcast, what is your favorite? Well, kebab is literally our national food here. I think there's a flag. There's a but flag here sure. on Mont Blanc Bridge of kebab. So what's your favorite kebab place in Geneva? Let me give you a hint. So, yes. Now, I have to say, I discover. This place that through my son is really in love of Palamir. Yes. Oh, no, know, no, I did, no, no. But no, I didn't no. know it was the famous. I he cannot. told me that he used to go with the friends. It's in Paki. And for me, Paki is the only cool area of Geneva. So I said, oh, my God, he invited me to go to Paki. And I discovered through him that 
He used to love this place. He's so fantastic. That's my son, which I enjoy a lot. Alamir is the one that you I cut, have to declare as a family. Cut, cut the my mic. My son, 16 years old, introduced to me. Cut the mic. And I like He's a smart guy. <laughs> you know what? This, this is just proof that Alamir is more in touch with the young generation. Parfum de Ruth is like IBM circa 1998. And Apple is Alamir. Thank you for you settling this debate. I, so, Alessandro, thanks. Thanks for joining us and for enlightening us, opening up our eyes, or at least mine. I'm not speaking for Rob here, but I, I do a lot of that around here. So that's, I guess, par for the is, course. Is my mic on? <laughs> so thank no, you again. Thank you. thank you for joining thank us. It's both. been a pleasure. And we're happy to have you on again in the in the future. Thank you for having me. Before we go, where can people go to find more of what the IFRC or the ICRC um, is doing in, in their work with the private sector if they, if they were but interested? They can Google IFRC.org. They can also look for a council, of, which is our body to coordinate the movement activities between the ICRC and the national societies. Excellent. Thanks so much, Alessandro. Thank you. That brings us to the next segment. Michelle is going to talk to us about the vibe shift. And uh, we've already talked about the possible death or at least chronic illness of globalization. So, Michelle, can I hand it to you? Yes. Actually, first of all, I want to ask you two what you would plan for a date night in general. Just give us a general Very idea. Very white. I would take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's number one. Okay, so maybe this isn't going to be so shocking to you because you don't seem to prepare date nights very well. But I want to talk to you about the clearest indicator of recession, economic downturn, or whatever Rob calls it. What do you call it, Rob? Downward pressure on prices. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Or the crisis of living in general. And I found this on TikTok, as usual. Maybe it's not the dates themselves, but it's the dating advice on social media. Recently, TikTok has been pushing this tinned fish trend or tinned fish night, especially for dates. This comes from at Ali or at Chef Ali on TikTok. And that just means that we have millions of young adults who are now embracing the idea that the perfect date night is canned tuna on the sofa. Netflix involved? That's a euphemism. I don't don't know what that is. (laughs) That's what I thought, too. But it's not really a joke. It's really there's a whole board with cans of tuna. I mean, it's supposed to be a little ironic, like, haha, I'm so quirky. I eat cans of fish and I can't afford my energy bill or maybe a little subversive. But mostly it's just sad. Like a cry for help. You get mayonnaise and like celery and salt and pepper. First of all, which date is who's going to that if I invite or somebody invites anybody to a can of fish and maybe Netflix, Hulu. I mean, God forbid Hulu. I don't know if you can afford Netflix in this scenario. Let's watch CBS News. and Everything has to come out of a can. There's actually pretty fancy canned something else from Patagonia. That's very popular. He's shivering under a mountain of blankets in a cold apartment. Eating tuna is not really my idea of a good date. But at least each person gets a can. At and least. a vest. That's so this is, this is like the indicator of possible recession coming. It's a leading indicator. Yeah, 100%. What, when else have we had date nights that are just eating out of a can? I think in feudal times. Probably the Middle Ages. College. They probably did College. What college did you go to? <laughs> date night? With canned tuna. With canned you didn't tuna? order a pizza? It's probably like five bucks. It was a nickel back when you were in I college. Used to eat, well, I used to eat ravioli out of the can. Maybe not on date nights. <laughs> I never really dated. <laughs> I never really dated. <laughs> Can't really speak to this one. Maybe you should have gotten some cans of tuna. And we went out in groups of friends until we got married. Over. It was an arranged marriage. <laughs> one for obviously. one. 
one yeah. for one. Well, for me, it's definitely not my idea of a perfect date night. Even if you, and this is another pro tip from the internet, can turn off all the lights to save on your energy bill and turn on a candle because it makes it more romantic, according to TikTok. You heard it here first. <laughs> Thanks, folks. The three C's of dating brought to you by How Trace is this going to change Hinder profile pictures? Do you take like the... Now it's not going to be guys with a fish. It's just going to be guys with a can of tuna. Can of tuna. Nice. Well, thanks a lot, um, Michelle. I think we're, we've got, really got our finger on the pulse here. Of the dating of the scene, even though I've never dated. And of, no, neither well, have you. Again, we're talking about what's the key indicator of 2020 whatever. Right now, dating advice. You that's with what, watches. That's what I got. <laughs> This brings us to our next segment, This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or perhaps almost anywhere else. We've been waiting for an update from the Swiss-French border. We've had a couple of interesting stories here. People smuggling sausages in a bus was one of our recent ones. Rare wildlife stuck down their pants and so on. So here we have a uh, something that comes a little bit closer to home. Somebody who was caught crossing the border with the Viagra and a small amount of marijuana. That wasn't really the issue. But the front seat of the car was filled with plastic watches. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about the story, Artie? My lawyers told me I shouldn't say anything. They told me to do the opposite of what Sam Bankman-Fried has done. I don't know how they knew it to look, but apparently importing fake watches into Switzerland. Well, Does that seem like a good idea? I don't know why, who thought that Fake watches in Switzerland was a good idea. Yeah, I think it's probably not the place for that. And if you was going to import anything, it should have been bioceramic. Thanks, folks. The listeners will know that it was me now. (laughs) The U.S. polymer industry thanks you. You're welcome. The last thing I want to talk about, and I think we need to bring in Michelle here, the Wall Street Journal, and I read it because obviously it has a lot to do with trade and economic development and so on. It also talked about the fact that we've now hit peak belly button during Golden Globe Awards, which appears to be you take a dress, you cut the middle out of it. Like a donut. Yeah. So I'm wondering, I don't think trade planning has hit peak belly button yet. And I don't think I'm willing to shave for that. I didn't know crop tops were back in, but I'm all aboard this <laughs> so, train. So, Michelle, have you hit peak belly button? Would you go for this trend? Wait, you didn't know crop tops were I back had, in? Well, how could you tell that? I had no idea. But I think it's like got to go all the way down, but you have to just cut the middle out. Yeah, the problem is not the crop tops. It's that the jeans are getting lower. See, that's fine because I have no rear end. So it's fine. <laughs> You're I've, such a I grandpa. I have You're zero such a there. grandpa. Like the wall has more curves than I do. So that's fine. So you're... But that's not about what... No, because the thing is, if you put them lower, then that's when you hit peak belly button. Uh, Are you going to start wearing crop tops? Already? I'll wear whatever will make me fashionable and cool in young people's eyes or younger people than me's uh, eyes. So I'll... Yes. I think with climate change, yes. This is going to yeah, be hotter. Just, There's no air conditioning in Europe. Yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the only solution as I see it. So trade planning will hit. Just follow Bella Hadid um, on fashion advice. At least what I saw in the Wall Street Journal, you have to really do a lot of sit-ups in order to make no, this no, look s- work. S- sit-ups are out. It's all about the planks now, Rob. Plank? Okay. Side planks, planks. Do the stir of the pot exercise with the Swiss ball. The real thing. That does not sound I'm like not, that. I'm that not, does not sound like you just said. I'm not. You can, listeners <laughs> can Google all this. I, I know of what stir I Stir the ball. Stir no. the pot, okay? It's a real thing. Google it. In any case. Artie knows all about fashion, about <laughs> Exercise. And watches. <laughs> Nothing about trade. The main indicator of this year is watches, folks. So I think that takes us to the end of our You Wouldn't Believe This Was True Unless Whatever segment. You lived regionally because globalization <laughs> is now dead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 42, brought to you by Molly Bidlin. Not Ringwald. I love her. 16 Candles. I did really like her. Long-awaited terminal illness or perhaps death of globalization. Canned fish or tinned fish, as it, as it may be referred to. And, of course, the reemergence or not reemergence of China. And I want to thank very warmly Alessandro Fideli of the ICFC, the ICRCFC. IFRC, but that's why we have a podcast. Anyway, we also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Ogin and Valentina Saponara for highlighting the vibe shift, as well as helping him produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already. Smash that subscribe button. Smash it. Don't break it. You can find us on almost any kind of place yeah, but, where you but, get podcasts. But before you do, you make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. Download it if you haven't already. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere Shouldn't else. Shouldn't they leave us a review already? Thanks, Grandpa. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Rob does read all of them, so please be gentle. And you can also find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. And email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, listen, listen responsibly. responsibly.